Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of 828. I'm your host Sarah Jenga and I hope you're all doing well. I am really excited um, today because we have a guest who is passionate and knowledgeable in all things related to mental health and wellness, which is very timely as we think about mental health and wellness for Mental Health Awareness Week, uh, which has been going on this week. And I think it's quite timely, particularly because of the season we're currently going under. The pandemic has had an effect not only on the physical well-being of so many people but also on the mental well-being which is talked about but less so. So we wanted to take this time to talk more about that and in honour of Mental Health Awareness Week this episode is going to help us understand what mental health actually means, dispel misconceptions around mental health, wellness and therapy and from a biblical perspective understand the stories of notable figures who may have struggled with it themselves and lastly understanding how the church can engage in more sensitive and supportive ways of encouraging our fellow church members with health issues leading from a biblical perspective. So uh, without any further ado, I would like to welcome our guest, Dr. Liz Chalice. Liz has worked in mental health services with the NHS for over 10 years and has been a qualified clinical psychologist for just under three years. She currently works within Child and Adolescent Mental Health Services in Oxford Health NHS Foundation Trust, and she is... Uh, an amazing uh, researcher and is really passionate about the subject. So Liz, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Now, just to clarify, uh, Liz is sharing her, you know, personal views, professional views. So she's not speaking on behalf of, of the NHS trust that she works for. Just wanted to clarify that. But let's just get right into it. Um, the term mental health in comparison to uh, how maybe it was thought about previously um, or maybe how uh, health was talked about in the Bible is quite a contemporary term um, but for the benefit of our listeners what does the term mental health actually mean and what does it constitute and how does it differ from maybe wellness for example? Um, well I think there's a bit of a split between what you might think if you stop and say well I'm actually defining mental health and what people how people generally correctly use the term so I think we'll often say, um, oh, they're, they're acting like that um, because of mental health. Um, and I think mental health, just like physical health, if you, if you say physical health, you haven't actually specified how someone's physical health is. You're just kind of, so, kind of saying, I'm talking about their overall physical kind of state at the moment. And I think at the most basic I'd say the same thing about mental health so it it can be a range of things and I think um different people so just like if you're in your 80s um what you might consider good physical health is maybe different than if you're in your early 20s I think that's true for mental health as well like if you're um, a new parent and you're quite sleep deprived you might expect to be a bit more emotionally, um, a bit less emotionally resilient, a bit more kind of emotionally reactive, because that's what sleep deprivation does to you, let alone having new responsibility for a small person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think mental health, as kind of I would define it, is about how you know someone's overall kind of mental state and well-being, and with some allowance for the fact that given your circumstances, there's a reasonable variety in that. Mm-hmm. um obviously then there's kind of and 
kind of genetic and health factors that play in as well. But then I think often when people say mental health, what they mean is mental health problem or mental health diagnosis, um, right. which is something different. Right. And it's interesting you mention uh, the different factors associated with that, because one misconception that some might have is that mental health or mental illnesses might only be affected by environmental or societal issues so let's say you you go through a certain situation in life something like you lose your job or you're dealing with grief etc and then anxiety or depression might be triggered which which is kind of understandable but there might actually be other physiological traumas or I had even genetics is, is that true is that myth or or how does that play into mental health there's some really interesting research that um appears to show that with one particular gene allele, so kind of a situation where you might have like one type or another type, um, that what that does is make you sort of vulnerable to your environment. Mm -hmm. So actually if you have the one where you are a bit insensitive to your environment, you come out sort of in the middle, um, regardless of whether you're, you, you're kind of born into a really supportive um, and non-traumatic environment or not. The other allele, if you have it and you're born into adversity or a time of war um, or a situation of domestic violence, you do worse. Your kind of outcomes are worse. But if you're born in for to fortunate circumstances where you, you have support and resources, actually you do better. Mm. So whether or not you want that genetic want not that we can choose our genetics but whether or not that is a benefit to you depends on your circumstance there's a really clear kind of gene environment interaction that has been suggested by the research in that instant hmm, that's interesting so it's almost as if the two interlink basically yeah and and one of the things you know there's there's lots of research that shows that there are genetic vulnerabilities to lots of different mental health problems and diagnoses one of the um analogies we use with our young people is um is about dandelions and orchids hmm. that some people are are like orchids and orchids need a really specific set of like environmental circumstances um, they don't just grow anywhere they won't grow up you know smashing through your paving slabs in your garden but if you get the circumstances right they are particularly beautiful and you know we're, we're using this with young people who are who probably do have those vulnerabilities. So we're not kind of using it to try and downplay if you can thrive anywhere, you're not as pretty. Um, but it's kind of that, that, that there is sometimes a trade-off between if you, if you are more vulnerable to your environment, kind of that there can be pluses on the other side, but it, it requires you to kind of then try and structure your environment to allow yourself to be more resilient. Right. That's, that's really interesting. It actually demonstrates how different each of us really are and how one environment might be might be better with withstanded by somebody who has maybe a certain genetic makeup but somebody who is maybe a slightly different genetic makeup um might be in that very same environment and might not be able to handle it um as well or they might react to it differently now for the sake of our listeners uh liz works um in mental health but she works specifically with adolescents and young people and statistics show that 
and I, I don't know whether this is because of the fact that there's more data to show this or whether whether it's because of the fact that mental um, illness is becoming more of a thing in society but mental health problems um, according to the Mental Health Foundation UK is actually proven to be one of the most or one of the main causes of overall disease burdens worldwide. So another question I, I have for you is, is the increases in prevalences um, as a result of us being a quote-unquote less resilient society? So is it because we are less um, adaptable to certain scenarios, whether it's war or any other sorts of uh, traumas that might affect us emotionally or mentally? Or is it because of the fact that there was a lack of data back then um so it was harder to trace or is it because there's um, more sensitivity towards things like this so it's easier to talk about in society or is it a combination of, of everything what what do you think um i think is is definitely going to be a combination of all of those things so i think there's been a lot of work done trying to reduce the stigma around mental health to encourage people to come forward and seek help if they do feel like they've got an um, a mental health problem. There's also some kind of research that sh- appears to indicate that actually if you are fighting for your basic needs, you don't necessarily, this isn't, it's not like that's a panacea, but um, it can mean that you don't stop and think because you don't have time to stop and think. You're too busy working out how you're not going to starve and not let your children starve. Mm-hmm. And once you get out of that absolute grinding horrendous poverty you have a bit more space to take stock and evaluate whether how your life is going is how you want it to be Mm. Um, and the answer isn't always yes because you know absolute grinding poverty once you're out of that you can still be in you know really quite abject poverty Um, and then there's also um, in the kind of more developed worlds there is an increasing focus on kind of uh, testing of um, children and young people and there's also some evidence that that's not great for um, short and sort of medium to long um, mental health outcomes because um, it kind of engenders um, a, a people who are prone to perfectionism or comparisons um, if you start putting numbers on things and, and making judgments based on those numbers it's, it's not helpful. Right. Uh, that's that's interesting and, and the point you raised at the end uh, reminded me of a YouTube video I watched a couple of months ago um, with somebody who used to be quite depressed and had a lot of anxiety because of the fact that they used to compare themselves a lot to other um, models or other people on Instagram or social media and there's I mean there's been a lot of studies about for example how social media affects um, your emotions and and how that can sometimes cause a lot of anxiety, particularly for young people. But it's interesting how you mentioned that because I, I do think in comparison to previous generations, we do live in a world whereby more so than ever, information is just right in our face. And mm. it's easy to, as a result, compare yourself or feel the need to rush or constantly be, I don't know, the best or um whatever it is i was just saying yeah to be seen to be living your best life yes exactly exactly um even if that's not necessarily the case and it's okay if it's not perfect Uh, no one's perfect um now another myth is that uh mental illness is something that is 
incurable once you have it you have it it's generational um and it's it's something that isn't uh, treatable now is that true uh well i hope obviously given what i do for a living um like i know that's not true mm-hmm. uh, so kind of with a, for most people um some combination of either um medication and or talking therapy um will mean that they make a full recovery and um, not everyone will be exactly the same person after they've recovered from a mental health problem but i don't think you're the same person you know, after you've got married and moved in with someone and lived with them for three years or after you've had your first child. I think our life experiences change us. And I think that's just as true for kind of going through mental health difficulties and recovering as it would be for anything else, like moving to a new country or any other big life experience. Um, but yeah, um, and I think there's an increasing recognition in this country that anxiety and depression are treatable. Yeah. Um, but I suppose I'd really want to be really clear that um, there's really good evidence for effective treatments for um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, for um, really kind of helpful input for people who might be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, or which is also in this country sometimes called emotionally unstable personality disorder. Like there is lots of um, and OCD has got a really good evidence base for um kind of getting that to shift often with a combination of medication and um structured talking therapy so not counseling but kind of a a kind of a structured CBT usually approach Mm -hmm. Um, so there is a lot of kind of hope and help for people Um, and your GP is pretty much always your your first port of call and your best bet if you are kind of feeling like your life and your functioning is impacted by your mental health and you're wondering whether that might be something that kind of needs treatment. Mm-hmm. That's really important to mention, actually. I think we are quite blessed to live in a country whereby we have, for the most part, those services easily easily accessible to us. Um, so we can easily go to the GP. Um, and if we are experiencing symptoms of depression, anxiety or other um, mental illnesses that um, we can trust that our GPs would be able to to help us find the adequate treatment um, for that, whether it's um, through medicine or, or therapy or a combination of, of the two. But a point you mentioned, which was really interesting, is that it's a worldwide issue, but it's obviously something that might not necessarily be addressed as much in other countries, whether it's because of cultural beliefs or that there's just not enough research being done in those countries. Mm. Um, so needless to say, I think even though mental health um, or different environments might affect people differently, unfortunately, we are living in a world whereby uh, access to treatment for that is not equitable. And I think is something that needs to be addressed. I wonder, have you done research or looked into that differences before? Like the, the, the kind of the effects of the lack of treatment for different people whether it's developing or developed or different groups of people within the UK so I have not personally kind of done any uh, research into that I know that there is a real awareness that different groups in the UK do access um, mental health support differently mm-hmm. um, the the you know it tends to be the kind of what you'd expect in terms of um, more marginalized groups are less likely to access support for mental health difficulties. Actually, that's not entirely true. What is um, an absolute travesty is that uh, people of colour are 
disproportionately represented in mm-hmm. um, inpatient settings um, but underrepresented in kind of community treatment settings so there's a there's a sense that they don't get that early intervention type help um, and that things are more likely to escalate to the point where they require inpatient admission and even the kind of loss of liberty and I you know I don't think there's anyone who doesn't think that that's um, just awful Uh, Mm. And I I know there are uh, various projects around the country trying to kind of shift that, but I think it's really local to the local kind of culture. Mm -hmm. And And by local culture, do you mean the local culture of those ethnic groups or do you mean the cultural attitudes towards those groups? If that makes sense. Yeah, I think, I mean, what will work in inner city Birmingham isn't necessarily the same as what will work... um, in South London and isn't necessarily the same again as what would work in Leicester. I think even might say demographically there might be some similarities. Um, My understanding is that because every community has different barriers, um, has a different kind of um, community culture um, and set of stories which will be driven by kind of country of origin and um, religious um, beliefs but also by local experience so actually if you've if you have um, someone who's key in your community who's had a really good experience then they will be a champion for that service and people are more likely to access it um, and then unfortunately the opposite is almost also true that if if we fail someone badly and they're very vocal about it and um, we're less likely to be able to then um, serve people who identify with that person because that what they've heard from someone who looks like them and lives like them is these people didn't treat me how I wanted to be treated. And I think what you said about kind of um, third world stuff, um, I know that there's there's a um, kind of a real awareness that something like depression, for example, presents differently across different cultures. Mm-hmm. So the most of the research and the diagnostic manuals, so the lists of you should diagnose someone with this if they present with five out of the following nine symptoms, those things are written in a sort of Western context and the lists just are different in um, like an industrialized Asian culture or African culture, like depression um, has much more somatic, so physical symptoms in different parts of the world, like headaches and stomach aches are much more um, central to the presentation Mm. Uh, and that kind of loss of pleasure um, and tiredness which is quite central in the kind of in the UK and Western cultures is um, less true. It's interestingly, that's also um, fairly true for uh, younger children. The anxiety and depression are more likely to present with kind of physical um, symptomology rather than um, people saying, I'm just not enjoying anything or I can't get out of bed anymore. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think re-emphasizes the fact that when it comes to mental health, how mental illnesses present itself and how you address um, illnesses through treatment, there's like one size does not fit all. And Ooh. you have to be very um, careful to be specific towards the context that you're, you're dealing with. Now, we're going to move on uh, away from the myths. I hope you guys have learned something from that because I definitely have. That was great. Um, but we're going to move on slightly and, and talk a little bit about um, how we apply uh, mental health in the, in the space of Christianity and our faith. 
Now, this is a Christian and we've talked previously about how, you know, your faith influenced the type of research you do. So, for example, I know your PhD was very much focused on, I think it was spirituality and, and mental health. Yeah, yeah, it was um, kind of did a discourse analysis study looking at how um, psychologists talked about addressing spirituality and religion with their clients really interesting stuff but then we also talked a little bit about how characters in the bible where various commentaries might propose that they might have had uh, a mental health condition or as as me and liz discussed earlier there might be some misconceptions as to whether that was true or not so for example there's obviously the story of david uh where in first samuel he loses his best friend, Jonathan. So there's feelings of grief. There's the situation with Bathsheba and Uriah where Nathan goes to, Prophet Nathan goes to David and, you know, warns him of, of the sins that he committed. And then the death of his son, Absalom, in the Battle of the Wood of Ephraim, which is in Second Samuel as well. And then we see like many instances where he does express a lot of deep sadness, for example, in Psalm 69, Psalm 22, and then there's other um, characters in the Bible, such as King Nebuchadnezzar and others who might have demonstrated either feelings of grief or it might be uh, symptoms of mental illness. Now, I'm really keen this to, to, to hear what you think, because some might argue that, for example, in the case of David, he might have had mental illnesses, but some might argue that it was just normal grief and it it wasn't that. So... Would you would you mind maybe talking a little bit about those distinctions and where maybe those uh, distinctions might be applied in the in the case of someone like David, for example? Um, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things I'm really um, keen for people to understand, particularly as discussion about mental health diagnoses and problems becomes more and more mainstream, which I think is really good, is an awareness that kind of emotional discomfort is part of normal human experience. So I'd actually say it's, it's, it's more pathological if someone were to go through a series of really difficult experiences or um, losses, and they didn't ha- then have kind of a time of uh, sadness. Um, it, obviously the timeframes vary a lot for different people, but um, most people will have some sort of response to experiences like the death of a loved one um, or a family member. Um, and And for most people, that will be to the extent that it impacts their functioning, where actually their day to day life looks different. Mm -hmm. Um, And there certainly isn't a right amount of time that you ought to feel really sad after you lose someone that you care about deeply, because there's lots of research that for some people and that grief process takes years. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a sense of for most people, their functioning is impacted more in the first few months and within a few months even though the sadness may remain they are at the point where they are able to get out of bed and do the things they need to do but for some people that initial grief reaction does then start a cascade of things whether that's um chemical in their um, brains or actually if it's a, a behavioral cycle where i mean sadness makes people want to withdraw to kind of have a duvet day, day and lick our wounds um, and that's really kind of that's a perfectly adaptive thing to do uh, but what we know is that if that becomes your main way of being and coping you you lose out on the contact with other people we use the acronym ACE so um, things that give you a sense of achievement 
connection to others or enjoyment mm-hmm. um, and if you are um, kind of hiding away to kind of tend to your brokenness which is perfectly kind of understandable if you then aren't able to have those achievement connection and enjoyment experiences that can then kind of start a spiral where your mood um, may um, spiral down and I certainly think reading the Psalms there are some of um, David's descriptions about kind of feeling like he's in a pit and that it's kind of uh, that sense of how long I cannot do this anymore and it feels like it's lasted forever exactly Um, yeah I mean if I if I may there's um one psalm that came to mind uh which was quite um quite deep and it's psalm 69 and it says save me O god for the waters have come up to my neck i sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold i have come to the deep waters the floods engulf me i am worn out calling for help my throat is parched my eyes fail looking for my god i mean if that's not that's really deep and that that to me represents the emotion of someone who is definitely going through some i mean something quite deep i mean in psalm 22 he 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 literally says my god my god why have you forsaken me um so yeah sorry to interrupt you but that that really struck me and and was quite quite interesting but sorry yeah you were saying about the psalms no and i think um i think that's absolutely right and i think that they can um i think sometimes when whether we're in the grip of a a kind of a life experience that means we are really struggling um whether or not that then goes on to kind of kickstart or um exacerbate a mental health problem i think turning and seeing that in this book of truth we've got these words that i think can capture what we're experiencing i think is really powerful because it shows that god knows i mean jesus mm-hmm. used those words my god my god why have you forsaken me like he he knew betrayal and sadness and and the kind of the loss of separation from everything he committed his life to so and it isn't about so god went through it and was fine so you should be able to go through it and be fine but it is about um knowing that you're not alone so Mm -hmm. both lots of people have those experiences in our country in our religion but also throughout our christian tradition um and i think you were also um talking um before about the example that actually that's some of the prophets seem to have that experience of they'll there'll be something amazing that happens um and then they really crash and they're saying actually it would be better if i hadn't been born yeah. they take themselves off on their own and i think i, I think it's it's slightly impossible to say um mm. whether those things would be you know if if someone was teleported back and said right i'm gonna do a diagnostic interview and see if i think that you've got a mental health diagnosis at this time um, i think for lots of them it was a quite a short term thing so actually most diagnoses say actually this needs to be a protracted experience for it to be diagnosable right. uh, but i think what's you know what's really clear is that those kind of experiences of pain um, and disorientation and suffering are are throughout the Bible, yeah. and and people both rage at God 
and lean on him. That's very true. Um, I mean, the, the points that you referenced about the prophet, uh, prophet Jeremiah, for example, he talked about being so low as a result of kind of the rejection and poverty that he was going through, that he started to reject being born. That's referenced in Jeremiah 20. Um, the story of, of Job is a very interesting example of, of a man who lost pretty much everything he had from riches to, to poverty, King Nebuchadnezzar, um, which is referenced in, in Daniel 4. So I guess in essence, what you're saying is it's hard to determine whether they would have had mental illnesses or not, simply because you basically have to teleport yourself to go back in time to, to figure out exactly whether that was conclusive or not. But what is encouraging is that we see examples of the Bible time and time again, whereby people do petition their concerns and their grief and their pain to God. And we see God working through them um, and, and working for them in order to, to help the situation, whether it's through, through their own life or the lives of their descendants, their children, their children's children, et cetera. So that's quite, that's quite deep and interesting. I want to talk a little bit about more modern day or practical things that we could possibly address in our Christian circles um, and in our churches. Now, this is a very frank question. Do you think we do enough to address mental health in our in our churches or our Christian circles? And if we don't, why do you think that might be the case? I think my experiences of that have been really um, mixed. I think I have seen in in my personal experiences only good intentions from people who love Jesus who want to love other people whether they know Jesus yet or not I might that said my experiences haven't been universally positive I think there's sometimes a um maybe maybe it comes from a lack of understanding of um of part of how things like anxiety and depression can work for people so I think often particularly depression comes with a really negative view of the self so anything can be um, kind of fitted into the narrative of I'm rubbish will be so if someone says to you kind of like well actually have you have you tried praying about it that could come from a really um, positive and helpful place mm-hmm. um, but often what will be heard is you're not a good enough Christian this is this is your own fault because you haven't been praying hard enough you don't have enough faith right even not what the person who might say something it meant to say or even believes or would ever kind of uh, want the person to take away um, from that. And I know from some of my previous clinical experience um, that I've had people who said they were worried about coming to um, therapy because they were worried that um, their therapist would try and talk them away from their faith. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I certainly don't think that that, you know, given my my doctoral research topic there is never an intent I don't think for therapists to change the beliefs um on a kind of religious level um of the people they're working with there may be some exceptions in terms of um if people have got really difficult kind of shame-based beliefs linked to generally speaking that would come from kind of a religious or Christian community and their interpretation of truth and God rather than um I in my view from the Bible itself uh but yeah I think I think the the church does a lot to love people um, Mm -hmm. and things like um when you know that someone's uh, really struggling kind of doing the shopping making a meal 
um, kind of putting a note in your diary to check in every week, even if you don't get a response. I think those are things that I've seen the church do and do really well and beautifully. But I also think there's, and, and this is, I think it's true for physical health as well as mental health. There's sometimes a, uh, a, a move to kind of push the spiritual side of that. And I think there is a spiritual side to mental health and well-being, but without necessarily recognizing the, the, the physical and, and medical and psychological side that is also there and can also really help to shift things. Right. Now, based on your experience, you talked a little bit about how maybe some Christians might be worried to actually have therapy um, or attend therapy sessions because they are concerned that maybe the treatment that they're receiving or the practitioners that are going to be um, taking care of them might try and downplay their faith. Now, do you, I know you, you, you talked a little bit about this before and I think your PhD might reference this, but have you noticed that maybe the lack of uh, welcomeness to therapy or other treatments is because of that fear and and how do we address that as a church like how do we have more honest conversations about that yeah I think that that is part of it I think there is this kind of sense of um that actually secular culture and society doesn't always um kind of look positively or fondly on on the church particularly on kind of more evangelical aspects where kind of people feel like we're a bit more um like they might use terms like fundamentalist um Mm. but i think from from my experience what's true is if it's if something's really important to you um a good therapist will if that seems relevant to what you need to work on go away and do some research and then come back and check it out with you and kind of be like, look, this is, you know, this is what I'm, this is what I've discovered. Or they'll say, it's really interesting that you say that. Have you, have you considered talking to your pastor about whether they think that's what the Bible says about um, whether you should just be working harder? And actually, this is a, a example that you're, you're, you've not got enough faith. And right. um, kind of direct people back to say, I can do the bit that I can do. And um and actually, is there someone in spiritual authority who you trust? Um, and do you want me to speak to them first? Um, and and I think there are there are times when when people choose to seek out um, kind of Christian counselors or Christian therapists. I think it's really important that as a as a community, we like I, d- I don't think we even if we would offer to pray first for someone's physical health. I don't think there would then be any frowning on people going to the doctor to get a referral to the you know specialist unit at the hospital who can do some tests to check out what whatever's going on with the physical health mm-hmm. um, and you know I think we're 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 moving towards in some some circles I mean I think it's worth saying if I was in a church where they didn't take mental health seriously I probably wouldn't be able to stay there mm. and at home um so i maybe have a slightly biased sample in that um if there was somewhere where the only view of say people's psychotic experiences was that that was a example of demonic presence that i i couldn't tolerate that because that's not my lived experience so 
I think I think narratives like that can be really dangerous. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. interesting, and I, I I will say particularly for my from my experience and also um, what my church does to to address this, um, and I guess more widely as a country, uh, the Church of England through the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, he does speak quite vocally about these issues, which I guess is a positive step towards Christians being more um, sensitive and understanding towards these issues. But I do agree with you whereby I think, as you say, being more understanding and not necessarily attributing it to one thing, um, you know, whether whether they see it as a demonic thing, needs a little bit more unpacking and more understanding so that people might be more receptive to, to medical treatment uh, if it's needed. Now, you've worked in, in this field for a, long, for a long time and you work specifically with young people, but I believe you've worked with a range of patients. I yeah. wonder whether you, and, and how do you deal with the, the fact that you are a Christian and you have a belief system, but then you also work for, you work in a sector whereby that distinction sometimes has to be made to maintain professionalism. So how do you address maybe the occurrence whereby you have a patient who is Christian um, and wants their treatment to be addressed a certain way based on their beliefs, but then you also have to maintain a certain level of professionalism? Is there a clash there sometimes? Do you sometimes face this internal clash or like how do you deal with that? I think so if someone came saying I'm a Christian and my Christian beliefs are really important to me and I'd really like them to be addressed as part of my therapy Mm. um, which has only actually ever happened to me once um, that that actually frees me up to say well I'm also a Christian I might not believe all the same things as you do because we don't all believe all the same things Mm. Um, but if you're happy for us to try and do that together alongside this evidence-based stuff that um that kind of the research tells us is helpful for the particular thing that you're presenting with and then what also is really clear in the research is that um, adapting things to fit with people's um values is only helpful um in terms of for people who i don't know what they're uh, religious faith is or that kind of when I'm asking about that they say well I'm christened um, and the kind of the senses that they kind of might normally identify as a Christian but it's not something that's kind of active in their life I mean it isn't ethical professionally for me to let them know my views on religion just like it wouldn't be ethical for me to tell them which political party I support or what I think about um, I don't know uh, whether people should eat meat or not all that sort of stuff like there's a there's a range of views that um it's not considered because being someone's therapist is a position of power that actually it's not okay to kind of share beliefs that might be seen as being kind of pushed on someone Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean I don't pray for people outside of sessions so kind of what what they can't regulate is my professional and personal beliefs so actually there are people who I'll pray before I go into a session or I'll pray for them kind of outside of work because actually God's put them on my heart and I I know that they're hurting and what they need yeah that's interesting now Mm. a good number of Christians work for the NHS 
um, as you mentioned, prayer is something that is important and that you that you do uh, for your patients. For example, before you you have a session with them, what difference do you think maybe Christians could do who work for the health care sector to raise awareness of health and mental health um, in churches? Like from a more practical perspective. So I think obviously in churches there's things like help groups or uh, sessions where people pray for one another. Do you think it's more of a thing of Christian healthcare practitioners, I don't know, doing presentations in churches or, you know, uh, ministering to people and using their experiences in healthcare as an example of, of God's goodness? What does that look like and how can we, in our unique possessions, help? I think I'm, I'm really blessed at the moment that um, because I go to quite a big church in Oxford where... Um, where people may well know that they're kind of working on um, trying to find a vaccine for COVID-19. Yeah. We're currently having um, every week in our kind of Sunday morning live stream service, the leaders of the church interview someone else who works in health or health research um, and says, what do you do day to day? How has coronavirus impacted what you're doing? Um, and how can, you know, please pray and tell us how we can pray for you or your team or the current situation, given what you know that we won't necessarily know. And I think that's beautiful. I think mm-hmm. that's a really powerful thing to do to say, it's not that, you know, cause some, you know, they interviewed a, a midwife and she's not directly working um, with COVID-19, but she is um, kind of sharing the experience of lots of mums who are not giving birth in the way that they expected because their their partner can't be there for as much of the time as they were kind of hoping and planning and I think I think things like that I think things like um short slots on kind of women's breakfasts or kind of um prayer days I think is really appropriate because I think one of the things that does happen when you work in a field for a long time and I think this is true not just in health fields um that we forget what that not everything that we know is stuff that everybody knows. Right. Um, and you can see that sometimes in people using, you know, three letter abbreviations or jargon that you're like, uh, you're acting like I'll know what that means, but I, I'm not an engineer. So I've got no. <laughs> um, and I think that's, that's true for health and mental health as well, that actually sometimes we might think, actually, I'd, I know I don't have that much specialist knowledge, but just kind of saying some of the basics, it's, it's amazing sometimes how powerful people can find that if they've not ever had their own experience of a chronic health condition or um, a mental health diagnosis. Um, and um, I remember two of my friends um, who are both really kind of positive people coming and finding me and being like, why on earth would anyone self harm? Like mm-hmm. I just, we can, we've been talking about it. Um, we cannot get our heads around it and we'd love to talk to you about it because it makes so little sense to us that it's not that we're not compassionate towards people who might but we literally cannot cannot comprehend it and i think having that openness of um people knowing what you do and knowing that you're open to having those conversations in a way that's not just not judgmental of um kind of people's struggles but also not judgmental of people who don't understand yet um i think that can be really useful that's really powerful and I love the fact that your church does this. My church does um, things quite similar as well whereby they have TED talk style events whereby they bring different people um, in different fields or Christians 
working in in different sectors and kind of sharing their experiences but also talking about how you know their faith has helped further their ministry and their work um or dispelling myths or answering questions that the general congregation might have um it might be a little bit too um nervous to to ask in a in a in another space um so i think that's great that your church does that and i think that's a testament to the fact that it does work and hopefully more churches can can do more of that because i think it really does help encourage more open and honest uh conversations and increases the knowledge of our of our um brothers and sisters in christ so we can address situations like this in a more um sensitive and and helpful way Great. Now that's, that's really helpful. Now, a couple of last questions um, in regards to more practical ways um, for those who aren't practitioners and aren't trained in this, how can we um, identify someone who might be going through something and how might uh, we go about helping them um, get access to treatment, whether it's going to see their GP or a therapist or et cetera. So um, if I'm not wrong, I believe anxiety and depression is one of the most common mental illnesses in the UK. Is that right? Yeah, that is. Right. So how would someone be able to identify, um, and I know that differs according to, um, as you say, different ages um, or kind of different demographics maybe, but how would you be able to identify someone who might be suffering with um, depression anxiety, and anxiety? What might be the symptoms? Yeah, so I think kind of working on the assumption that this is someone that you you have a relationship with mm. um, often um, one of the first things w- that would kind of raise my concerns and mean that I'd kind of want to check in with someone is um, seeing less of them or kind of having less interaction with them when I do see them so kind of people who kind of drop off the radar a little bit or um, who are much quieter or more withdrawn than they have previously been and obviously sometimes people drop off the radar because they they you know they're moving house and they've got a new job and you know they're really busy um but i don't think it's a bad thing then to check in and check if they're doing all right mm-hmm. um anyway um and and then kind of saying you know i i'm i'm worried about you like so not saying necessarily, are you okay? Right. Because particularly in um, the UK, there is a correct answer to that. And the answer is yes. Um, or how are you? I'm fine. Um, and you have to ask maybe an, a follow-up question or even just the same question again before someone will give you more than that default answer often. Uh, and I think asking, is there anything I can do to support you? Because it, even if someone isn't struggling with anxiety or depression, if they're not around a lot, it may well be because they're kind of struggling with doubt or they're really busy or they're feeling overwhelmed. And then it also means that if they are struggling with their mental health, you have given them an opportunity to let you know. It isn't something that we talk about very much. Mm -hmm. So actually it is a big, I think it often feels like a big risk to people to say, actually things have been really difficult right and and if someone says i've been finding things really hard or i've been feeling really depressed um if you are thinking that's might be what's going on for them just having a bit of a think about what you might say um because it's you don't have to solve it it's okay to say i'm i'm really sorry to hear that do you want to go for a coffee 
you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to, but it might be good to just hang out or let me know if you want, you know, obviously not at the moment, let me know if you want me to come around and, and give you a hug. Mm-hmm. And like that kind of, I think it's really useful sometimes to know that being with someone and acknowledging that you can't say any words necessarily that will make it okay, but that you want them to know that they're not alone whilst they are suffering and struggling. And then if they're not getting any support, I really do encourage people to, um, to go and see their GP and, and kind of saying, look, I, I've said to people before, if you're not sure or if you think you might make the appointment and not go, I can come. I don't have to come into the room, but I can wait in the waiting room if you think that would make it easier or make you more likely to turn up. And then kind of, because I care about you and I think it's important you are supported in all the ways you need to be. And then if people say no, and if people are kind of evasive in their answers, also respecting that. And that's kind of, I talked earlier about kind of maybe setting a reminder or putting a note in your diary to check in on a regular basis so that people know that just because they say they're okay once, you're not going to hound them, but you're also not going to forget about them either. With depression, people can be tearful um, without necessarily even, so sometimes people will know why, but sometimes people are tearful and it it feels like it kind of hits them out of the blue. Um, Fairly commonly, though not always, be eating more or less than normal. Um, And often the same for sleep, so either sleeping a lot more or often a lot less Um, One of the key biological symptoms of um, depression is that um, people often have very disturbed sleep. So it takes them um, a long time to fall asleep and or um, they wake up in the night and then struggle to get back to sleep again um, or wake very early in the morning and can't return to sleep. Um, So I suppose those things you're more likely to be aware of if you're living with someone. Um, But then sometimes I think when people are talking about what their life is like, they might mention those sorts of things like that they're not really feeling hungry and they might not have put that together with the fact that actually what they're describing is is the so not enjoying things struggling with your sleep and your appetite and being markedly different those are key kind of biological indicators of depression and if those things persist it's really worth going and seeing someone um to kind of get it checked out and they can also be of course symptoms of um, physical health difficulties so always Mm. another reason to go and um get checked out um, and with anxiety um, you, you, you often see people kind of changing their behavior to avoid the things that are anxiety provoking so sometimes that means not going out but other times it means going out but they walk the long way around because um, actually that street only has uh, street lights on one side and they don't feel safe enough um, either because right. of anything they've had or um, kind of um, a series of thoughts that kind of have kind of spiraled out of control for them and are kind of controlling what they're doing that's really great thank you so much for um giving those those differentiations between those two and hopefully to our listeners if you do notice that a loved one is having symptoms or presenting those symptoms hopefully uh, liz's advice might help you figure out how best to to deal with that and approach that um in in a proper way now last question um i always say that prevention is better than than cure um so really? i'm i believe the same thing for our physical and mental well-being um so what tips could you give to our listeners and also to myself because i i'm also trying to 
to keep uh, myself mentally and, and physically well during this um, this lockdown period. What what things can we do to look after our own mental um, health and well-being? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think um, there has been a reasonable amount of um, kind of talk about this in the in the media. So I'll I'll say a few bits that I think most people know, but that doesn't mean they're always easy to do. Um, so a key one is try to have a a good routine. So um, a, a similar sort of um, kind of uh, plan for your days or at least a plan day to day um, is really important. Most people thrive on structure, um, particularly if it's not overly rigid. I mean, what I talked about earlier in terms of the ACE activities, so achievement, connection and enjoyment. Um, so that might be um, if, you know, a lot of people are furloughed at the moment. So um, recognizing that an achievement is whatever you do that feels difficult from where you are. So for some people, getting up, having breakfast, doing the washing up straight after breakfast, and then popping a load of washing on before they leave the house is just their morning. Mm. For other people, that's a whole day's work and they put a huge amount of effort into getting all of those things done. Um, and recognizing that if where you are at means that that's an achievement, you should pause and kind of congratulate yourself for achieving that because we start where we are, not where we think we ought to be. And trying to connect with others and do things that are enjoyable, even though obviously our world is so different at the moment. Um, in terms of kind of emotional resilience, there's an acronym uh, TEAS that kind of really helps with that. So, the, and this is kind of a basic bedrock. Um, if you want to be emotionally as resilient as you kind of can be, you need to treat phys any physical illnesses. So um, high blood pressure, low blood sugar, um, uh, kind of rumbling chest infection, those things are all going to kind of really significantly impact your um, kind of emotional state as well as your physical state. Um, you balance your eating. Um, so try not to eat too much or too little because both of those things make us vulnerable to kind of extreme emotional states. Well, eating too little makes us kind of more irritable um, and eating um, too much kind of has negative um, consequences in the long run. Mm -hmm. um, a is for avoid mood altering drugs. Um, and we really mean all mood altering drugs. So um, if you're prone to anxiety, caffeine has a very similar effect on the body as adrenaline does. So thinking about um, how much caffeine you're having um, and similarly alcohol is a depressant. Um, so that's not that caffeine and alcohol should be totally avoided, but um, if you are kind of in a place where you know you're emotionally vulnerable, kind of being aware of um, how much stimulants, so nicotine and caffeine and um, obviously um, illegal stimulants as well, and then um, alcohol, uh, you're having and um, so t-e-a-s um, is for sleep so trying to balance your sleep and have a regular time that you go to bed and wake up more possible for people who don't work shifts or have um babies um and then um e is for uh, exercise so trying to move um, and that's you know that's why the government's been so keen on people get going out for a walk or a jog um on a daily basis and um, so that kind of protects your emotional well-being and mm -hmm. um, i think if you can do that try and have your ace activities in a kind of structured routine and um, and then there's lots and lots of research that so shows that kind of um gratitude is really um powerful for mental well-being mm, interesting 
and I think lots of people I'm, I'm, I know when I was in youth group we um we learned the the teaspoon acronym for praying so that you start with thanks um, and praise and then you maybe say sorry and then once you've done those things uh, you move on to your pleases um, and I think kind of taking that time to um, be thankful um, and not in an ingen a disingenuous way I think the Psalms are really powerful partially because a lot of them start with a bit of a rant and a rave <laughs> yeah by, by the end they're praising God um, and I certainly that's my experience and um, if I read back through some of my prayer journals um, I'll often I mean having said start with thank you I often end with thank you because I start with this is where I'm at God and mm -hmm. um, move through um, through to acknowledging who he is and and who he remains remains um, and remembering that you're loved so um, mm -hmm. lots of that um, uh, toxic productivity talk at the moment about actually um this isn't the time to be trying to write a novel or learn a new instrument or a whole <laughs> um that um kind of saying if i'm getting through the day um that can be enough because these are unusual times um and i think um as christians we have a really powerful place from which that from which that comes which is that i know that i am loved i am my beloved and he is mine and that is true on the basis of his love for me as a father not on the basis of what i produce um and i think that if we can hold on to that that's really powerful for our health and well-being as well amen that was amazing that's so powerful and i love how you not only talked about the um more practical things in terms of exercise i'm trying to do my hit workouts every day um <laughs> so that's definitely something that has helped me but you know just the 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 fact that something as simple as seeing the glass half full and showing um gratitude and, and kind of taking each day as it comes um and not worrying so much about things that you can't control is also really useful so thank you so much for sharing that liz Thank you so much for, for joining us today. That was absolutely amazing. I hope you listeners have learned something uh, from that. I want to wrap up with a Bible verse, which I thought was quite uh, relevant to the topics that we've discussed today and excellently reiterates uh, Liz's point about knowing that regardless of, of what you're going through, that you are loved and you have a God who loves you. And this is from Matthew chapter 11 uh, verses 28 to 30 and it says come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light so please be encouraged whatever you're going through that god is with you and we hope that this episode has helped you take away some nuggets of information that you can take towards improving your uh, mental and physical wellness but also seeking access to treatment and therapy um, should you need it so liz once again thank you for joining us god bless you i wish you all the best with your continued work and thank you to everyone who's joining us uh until next time guys god bless bye, -bye.